A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So says the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1.4. Your translation of Ecclesiastes might say the teacher. But you can understand why my thoughts would turn to a verse like this one. In these days, I have every reason to be uh, acutely aware of generations going and coming. Uh, generally speaking, uh, my life uh, revolves more and more with each passing day around the grandkids. It's amazing the distance it will drive to watch a four-year-old practice t-ball. That's <laughs> and then there are these rites of passage things, like uh, even today, you know, in 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 the church, you know, with. Uh, high school graduations and then there's the wedding plans and things like that that come up generations uh, generations coming generations coming and on the other hand in, in my family you know in a, the family I grew up in our mother is uh, 87 years old and, and really in in declining in declining health overall doing better this week than she was last week but um, but she is she is definitely the very last of her generation in our family. And then, of course, since February, I, I myself have been confronted with my own mortality in a new and very personal way. You know, at the close of the day, uh, when we got the unexpected and unpleasant and really unwelcome news, I the day when we, the day when I was confronted, and we were confronted with this one of the great fears of modern life and that's a man in a white lab coat saying I'm afraid I have some bad news at the end of that day I sat on the edge of the bed said to my wife on the other sitting on the other side of the bed you know when I woke up this morning I knew I was mortal and I've known it a long time but right now tonight it's different it's different and it was different, and it remains different. It remains different from then on. Uh, since then, I, I, I have noticed something that I r never really noticed before. These last few months, I've noticed something I, 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 that I've never really thought about before, never noticed it. Well, I did, I did uh, thought of it a little now and then, but it, it just really kind of came to the fore, and that's how often people in the way that they speak, just casual conversation, uh, assume uh, a kind of an open-ended expectation of life continuing indefinitely on and on and on. Just in casual, con so, someone, is taking, someone is taking their first trip to some place. We're taking our first trip to fill in the blank. With, with no apparent doubt whatsoever that there will be many more such trips in the future. This is our first one. Or someone, someone else is uh, altering their diet to make sure they live long and well. And use those words, make sure. I want to make sure I, you know, I live a long time and I don't catch this, I don't catch that, and I... And then I'll, someone's someone's favorite sports team is is laying the groundwork to be good 
and compete for a title three to five years from now, and they are so looking forward to it. They should be good in five years. <laughs> That'll be good. Someone doesn't want to take a, on a car payment for the next five years because, you know, you know that's a drag. That's <laughs> but there's an assumption there that, yeah, yeah they, they could and they might, and that'll be the way it is. And it's just the way people talk when death has not drawn near as far as they know. And since it is not drawn near, it's easy, and not to mention pleasant, to imagine that it must be far, far away. I, I like watching golf on television. Now, Jordan Spieth I, is a young golfer. He's only 23 years old, but he's really kind of big star all of a sudden. He, he came up short at this year's Masters golf tournament and he consoled himself he's been interviewed afterwards and he said he said that's okay I'll have a I'll have 50 more I'll have about 50 more opportunities 50 more opportunities and you think oh will you how would you know something like that 50 it's an annual event keep in mind so he's saying I'll have 50 more chances to play in this tournament and and even if he even if he w will be golfing at the Masters, you know they let retire, you know like Arnold Palmer to you know till he passed away. But they, you know if you've won the Masters like he has, you get to play. If you can if you can walk and carry a club, they'll let you tee off on the first hole anyway. If it's, even if it's just ceremonial. But even if he does get to do that for 50 more years, why is that such a comfort? Oh, well, here's why. Because 50 years sounds like forever when you're 23 <laughs> but in truth the, you know the reality of it is that 50 years is nothing like forever has nothing and hardly anything in common with forever at all the difference between 50 years and forever is infinite and the difference between you know Grab a phrase from the Bible. The difference between three score and ten and forever is infinite. And the difference between 87 years old and forever is infinite. They only seem, you know, these, these shorter periods, they only seem like forever to the young. But it's a misperception. That's not the way it is. It's not in keeping with reality. It isn't, it isn't true. But of course, the recently arrived generation sense of time and its passage is always 100% of the time skewed toward unreality. Think of the toddler's perception of time when he's made to sit in time out for 10 minutes. It's an eternity. It's eternal punishment for sure. It's you know it's it's just forever, never ending torture. Do you, and if you're you know if you're not a toddler, you remember you remember waiting for Christmas to arrive. Do you remember that? Do you remember waiting for your birthday maybe? You remember sitting in school you know like five minutes before the bell rings to let you out of that place that institution 
and waiting, waiting for the clock to strike 3.30 or whatever it is when you, when you got out. All right, so the, a little one, a young one gets a little older, and his perception of time is a little improved, but only a little. You know, I got, uh, Ethan, this is your time. I, I, uh, I asked Ethan permission to tell a story about him since he's here. But if he wouldn't be here, I'd have been telling it just the same, just so you know. But, but today I happen to have permission. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I offered to help five-year-old Ethan Hopping tie his shoes. And he said, no, he said, no, thank you. He said, I'm five years old now, and I can pretty much do everything on my own. And then I said how old do you think I am? And he looked me over and he said, and this is, I remember it like yesterday. He looked me over and he said, uh, 12? And I said, no, I'm older than that. And he said, 13? <laughs> and, I, and I told him, that's as far as we went with it. I said, no, I, I said, I'm 44 years old. It was, you know, it was 20 years ago. I, I said, I'm 44 years old, and I, the look on his face, I, might, I told him I was 44, but I may as well have told him I was 144 or 440 or 44,000. You know, it wouldn't have made any difference, 44 million years old. He just couldn't imagine someone living so long as to become 44 years old. Can you imagine? How do you breathe? How do you live? How do you, you know, how can you even, uh, how can you even, you say that these days? <laughs> but today, today, he's over halfway, he's well over halfway to the age I was when we had that conversation quite a shock isn't it Ethan <laughs> so I would say to him and really all other 25 year olds is that their instinctive perception of time has almost certainly improved over the last 20 years but it is almost certainly not yet accurate <laughs> not yet in keep you know really fully in keeping with with the way things really are you know a year or two after that interaction with uh, young Mr. Hopping there was a girl of a oh as I recall eight or nine years old in our church who, who had committed some sort of a church crime I can't remember what it is an actionable offense of some kind I can't remember what it was but it was bad enough where she had to have a private sit-down meeting with the pastor was me. <laughs> she had to go talk to the pastor about it. And so we did. We did that after the come-to-Jesus portion of our meeting, you know, <laughs> where we dealt with this thing. I was trying to make it. After we dealt with all that, you know, we did that. We did it. And I was trying to make her feel that it wasn't the end of the world, that she hadn't been excommunicated or something that we you know that it would uh, it would it was going to be okay so before I turned her loose we engaged in a little small talk you know we just had 
had a chat. I was trying to I was trying to let her know that things were okay as long as she didn't do again whatever it was she did that I can't remember. <laughs> and she lived in Oak Ridge, very near where I lived growing up. And when she told me about going down the trail into the green belt and down to the creek, playing in the creek, I said, I told her that as a teenager, that I went down that very same trail, that very same creek, and, and fished in it. And she said, really? I said, yeah. And she said, boy, that is an old creek. She said, same, same sort of skewed, warped, unrealistic uh, perception of time. She thought, you know, it, it must take an eternity to get to get to something as old as 40 or 50 years old, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. We get older still. Our perception of time becomes more accurate, but not automatically and not necessarily. It's, people get so used to thinking about our own personal future as open-ended, and death is so far off, it's, it's really not, not worth thinking about, at least not now that it's possible for people to come right up to the point of death and be surprised by it, even when they're old. Be surprised by it and completely unprepared for it. The, the actor, John Lithgow, you, you know, does that bring a face to mind, John Lithgow? He's, he's the voice of uh, Lord Farquaad in Shrek. He said, he said, time sneaks up on you like a windshield sneaks up on a bug. <laughs> Jesus told a story, a parable that illustrates the same point, but more soberly. <laughs> a certain rich man had become still richer, and he said to himself, I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then Luke 12, 20, it says, But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. So, so Jesus warns us that it's very possible to come right up to the moment, before the moment of your death, still assuming in that moment before the moment that you have many, many, many more years to live and to enjoy and and when we read and we don't in that parable Luke 12 you don't we don't get an indication of how old this is but when I read it I don't know if you're like me but when I read it I don't get the impression of a young man whose whose life has kind of been cut short unexpectedly but of a of a mature man at least mature in years who thought that all would continue as it had been and that therefore he had given no attention at all to what comes after. I saw a headline over a news article that said that people who eat red meat have a 13% greater are at a 13% greater risk of dying. I mean, think about that. <laughs> and that's really what it said. People who eat red meat have a 13% greater risk of dying. There's a British newspaper. It's online. I don't, 
uh, but it is a British newspaper. And here's an actual quote from the article. Actual quote from the article. If people cut down the amount of red meat they ate, say from steaks and beef burgers, that must be what the Brits call hamburgers, I guess. If people cut down the amount of red meat they ate, say from steaks and beef burgers, to less than half a serving a day, 10% of all deaths could be avoided. And I it said 10, 13 to 10. I guess the 3% would die of something. Something else would get them. You know, something else would get them. So I don't know. I guess that's why that's what happened to 3%. But surely, surely the author can't actually believe that what he wrote as it, as it stands is true. He must know that the elephant in the room is that our risk of dying is already 100% coming in. So I guess if you eat burgers and steaks, your risk of dying is 113%. But elephants in the room are not to be talked about, of course, so he just writes in the language of denial that we all, the same language of denial about death that we all are accustomed to using, all we're all accustomed to hearing, it's just the way we talk. But the Bible does talk about the elephants in the room we would rather ignore. And the Bible, embodying wisdom from the eternal God, the God who created time, admonishes us again and again and again to wise up about the way we think of time and the, st- and the passage of time in the span of our lives. It pleads with us, admonishes us to think about it differently than, than we're used to thinking about it. You know, we're, we're a little, we tend to be a little closer to the, to the top. In the way we think about time, we're a little bit closer to the, uh, the toddler for whom the 10-minute time is an eternity than we are to the real truth of the matter. Even as adults, we've not, we've not yet really, most of us haven't really grasped it. Not in a way that we think about it instinctively. Job 14, man who is born, 14, 1 and 2, man who is born of a woman is a few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Job says, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Psalm 102 compares our our lives to a, to a wisp of smoke. It's it's like a wisp of smoke, or or it's like a uh, like an evening shadow. Psalm 103 says, "As for man, his days are like grass; he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. Its place knows it no more." Isaiah 40: All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. means the people are like grass. 
James 1, I'm sorry, James 4, 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. There's a, there are lots more of these. Other biblical images of a man's life, besides ones I've already read, it's like, our lives are like a swift ship. Comes into view and is gone. Swooping eagle, same thing. Where did it come from? Where is it? Who knows? <laughs> it was here for a second and it's gone. A sigh. The Bible compares our life to a sigh. <sighs> Where to go? <laughs> our life is like water a spilled on dry, parched ground. You pour it out, it's there, it's gone. <laughs> All of these things. All of these things, they're things that appear for a moment and they disappear just as fast. This is the eternal God trying to give us perspective on the passage of time in our lives. And it says this is the most accurate way to perceive time, the passage of time on our lives. This is the most accurate. Time flies and it flies away. And the scripture presents this as very valuable and important information it's a, it's an absolutely crucial insight that all mortals need to lay hold of and understand and think about and take into consideration as they live their lives that the bible says are really very short and fleeting and fragile and what, what is the value of this information? You know, what is the, you know, the, those brilliant Puritan preachers, or the many brilliant Puritan preachers, and when they preach, you get the idea they're preaching to brilliant people, really. <laughs> but those, this is where those brilliant Puritan preachers would say, what is the usefulness of this doctrine? <laughs> and so what's the usefulness of this doctrine? It isn't so that you can hurry up and get on your bucket list of things to do before you die. You know, whenever, when, in our culture, when, when, they, when people do kind of get something of a grasp on the brevity of life, that's the dot that connects to it. Bucket list. you got to have a bucket list. Things you want to do before you die, and, and you got to do them. But the Bible does not press the brevity of life so that you can experience all the pleasures, all the thrills that you hope to get out of life before it's gone. Which, which by the way, I don't think is really possible. When you do it all, and when you see it all, if, you, if any of us, if we really did get to the point where we checked off every single box of our bucket list there would still be more you wanted to see you wanted to do even if it was just to do and see some of those things again <laughs> I don't think it's really possible to get to the end of that and say okay I've done it I've, uh, I don't have any use of living anymore the author of Ecclesiastes and to my to my mind it doesn't say Solomon but I think it's got to be Solomon the preacher the son of David 
Although any successive king, any successive king could call himself the son of David, you know, that, that so, uh, but I think it's got to be Solomon, to my way of thinking anyway. One of the major themes in, of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, I've already done the bucket list of all bucket lists. And it does not fulfill like you think it will before you've checked them off. You see, and Solomon could say that, you know, money was no problem for me. If, if you have, even if you just have a mental bucket list, things I want to do before I die, one of the big holdups probably money. That's what, keeps, that's what keeps you from doing a lot of these things. Solomon you know, Solomon say that it never was a problem for me. I could afford to everything I wanted to do when I wanted to do. I didn't have to save up for anything. I had the best of everything. Power and authority were no problem for me. That could be another problem with your bucket list. You can't get people to do what you want them to do. Not a problem for Solomon. He was king over everyone he saw. He could, he could literally make other people do what he wanted them to do. And in a, it, Solomon could say, in intellectual matters, I had no rivals. Right? Can he say that? He's the wisest of all men. So, you know, a lot of people's things they want to do before they die, I want to learn about this. I want to learn about that. You know, it's a, you know I, want to, I want to just drink it all in gain knowledge he said I I learned everything there was to learn I he could say I accomplished everything I put my hand to I did it and I was he could say I was not limited in any way like you are like I am and I'm telling you Solomon says the fulfillment you think will come by checking off all those boxes and doing all those things you want to do. It's a mirage. It's not, it won't feel like you think it's going to feel. It's not going to satisfy like you think it's going to satisfy. And then he says, and this is another major point of Ecclesiastes, and the end of it all, the end of it all is death. Just the same as you didn't get the... If the end is the same whether you got the bucket list done or not. Whether you learned everything you wanted to learn or not. That's one of the major things Ecclesiastes. The wise man and the fool, they end up at the same place. What does it matter? He says, I, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Mark Twain, near the end of his life, he wrote this. I, I don't think he's listening to Solomon, but it's amazing that he comes to pretty much the same place. Here's what Twain wrote. He said, A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. 
age creeps upon them and infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavy, heavier every year. At length, ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in its place. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they left no sign that they've existed, a world that will lament them a day and forget them forever. Depressed yet? <laughs> the Bible doesn't impress upon us the brevity of life so that we can be sure to make a bucket list and if, that, if it's not telling us for that, why does it make so much of such a depressing subject as the brevity of life and the certainty of death? Well, here's why. It's so that we who are, whose lives are a mist, are a shadow, are a sigh, can lay hold of something eternal the eternal God eternal life in God's eternal kingdom sharing the reign of Christ sent to die for us that we might live forever you know no matter how long you live no matter how much you accomplish no matter how much fun you have no matter how many pleasures you experience no matter how many places you see no matter how much money you make you will not get everything you want to get out of life, out of living. Because while life in this fallen world comes with an expiration date that, that you don't know what it is, God has put eternity in your heart. And it calls you to life. Not a life for, not life for three score and ten. Not life for 87 years. Not life for 50 years. But life. A, a retired pastor told me recently that he told his doctor, he said, you know, if I get a, a, some sort of terrible diagnosis, you know, I, I, think, I'll just, I think I'll just pack it in I, I, and, you know, welcome it, let it happen. I don't want to resist it. You know, I've had a good life. He's, 60, he's 69. He said, I've had a good life. I've accomplished everything I set out to do. I'm basically, right now, I'm looking for things to do. I, I think I would just, I think I'd just welcome it. And his, and his uh, doctor, also a Christian and a friend, he said, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. He said, the Lord made you to want to live. You're hardwired that way. Uh, everybody is. Everybody is. We just can't help it. God put in us the appetite for life, not death. Eric was uh, Eric Abelquist was telling me about someone who'd lived 12 years after a cancer diagnosis. This is a couple, a few months ago. 
And I said at the time, I said, you know, I would cash in right now for 12 years. If I knew I was going to die in 12 years, but I'd have those 12 years guaranteed, I'd, I'd take that deal in a heartbeat. And I, I repeated it to my friend who led me to Christ 43 years ago. And he, you know, he said to me, he said, yeah, but in 11 years, you'd be looking to cut another deal. And why did God, and that's probably so, and why did God make us like that? It was it, not to disappoint us, not to crush us, uh, but to whet our appetite for the eternal life that he sent Jesus to give us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he declares at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's why it's important, supremely important, to come to, to come as close as you can to a realistic reckoning of the brevity of life so that you can take hold of that lifeline <laughs> while you are in free fall in this world that is bent toward sin and death. Here's another of those brevity of life passages. But in this one, listen for the answer. Listen for the answer. Not just the problem, the answer. Psalm 103. As for man, his... Oh, I'm sorry, Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes, out, goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, Lord, now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you, the eternal there's an answer. And some of the, a couple of the passages that I read before, they end on the same note of hope. I kind of cut it off, but listen to the rest of it. Psalm 103, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Everlasting. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And what is God's word? Forever word. It's not just the bad news of sin and death, the brevity of life. It's the good news of eternal life through faith in Christ. And there's even a hint of that eternity in Ecclesiastes 1-4 where we began. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know, what, what an irony there that, the, that our lives are so fragile and transient while the earth, in that verse, the earth is what from which we were made, right? It lasts forever. And if you've been at our services in this church past couple of months, Believers, and I've talked about this, believers are not of one mind about whether the present earth will cease to exist and be replaced by an entirely new creation of God that is called the new earth, or whether the present earth will be entirely renewed and remade, 
transformed with a continuity between the old and the new. I come down on the camp of in the camp of a on the side of a redeemed and renewed creation. But to accommodate Ecclesiastes 1:4 to the other view that the present earth will be annihilated someday. One of my commentaries on Ecclesiastes says about this forever, the earth remains forever. It says this, the expression forever is relative in its meaning and here signifies little more than a good long while, which feels like a dangerous road to go down to me, <laughs> theologically, doctrinally, because I don't find a whole lot of comfort in the steadfast love of the Lord lasting for a good long while or the word of our God standing for a good long while, or Christ dying for us that we might live for a good long while. Death is forever, and God's answer to death is equal to the problem. It's eternal. God's answer to death is eternal life through faith in His Son. I believe in a new heaven and new earth made new, by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus and the summing up of all things in Christ as Ephesians 1 says things in the heavens and things on the earth death is an enemy that will be defeated for all who are in Christ but which will be eternally suffered by those who are not I'll, I'll end in a moment there's a, there's a little poem that was fairly popular in America for headstones, for gravestones in the mid to late 1800s. There's a, there's a number of them. Because you might read about it. It's in New England, and there's another one here, and there's another one there. It was, it was a little, it was kind of popular to put this particular, you know, little poem on, on headstones. It appears in many variations, but it goes something like this. Remember me, here's on the headstone. Remember me as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. So prepare for death and follow me and sometimes that passerby would write on the stone a verse of their own underneath in chalk or charcoal and they would write this to follow you I'm not content until I know which way you went <laughs> so where are you going which way are you going have you made any plans well, I'm going to college. I mean, after that. Well, I'm going to have a career. I mean, after that. Well, I, I hope to marry and have a family. I mean, after that. Well, I, I guess someday I want to retire in relative comfort somewhere nice. I'm, I mean, after that. And then someday I'll die in my bed, hopefully peacefully, restfully. I mean, after that. Because they're most definitely is an after that God doesn't confront you confront us with the brevity of life to depress you or so that you'll get used to the idea you know and you're going to be dead forever and ever or that you can make up the bucket list and and try to squeeze everything you want to do into that into that life that'll when it comes to the end it will seem to have passed like a flash he tells you and tells me tells us that our life is fleeting so that you'll know and realize and be motivated to take that foothold in eternity 
that he offers us through faith in Christ before death comes. He's put the appetite for you, for it in your heart already, and he feeds it by telling you, consider your life. It's like a shadow. It's like a mist. It's like a breath. It's like a sigh. It's like a runner running by. It's like a bird flying by your window. Where did it come from? Where did it go? And he says, take it. Take that foothold in eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Father God, uh, teach us all, young and old, to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom, as your word says. And let wisdom lead everyone in this place to choose to live eternally and not merely a life that can only be lost in the end. In all who believe, let the assurance of everlasting life through faith in the person and work of Jesus, even in the face of death, feed an underlying joy knowing that even as we sojourn through this fleeting life, our foothold in eternity, our grasp of eternity, eternal life in Christ is sure because our Savior has gone to prepare a place for us that where He is, there we may be forever. Strengthen faith in every believing heart until it's sight. Grant faith to any who remain until now outside of Christ and without hope beyond this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.